so since I won't be able to do a message on the 22nd for y'all, I really feel like this is the Christmas message, Christmas message I wanted to give you. And um, it's gonna be out of Luke chapter two. So if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter two. If you don't, uh, the folks walking down the aisle will give you a Bible. Luke chapter two. I mean, we hear this verse countless times this time of year. Some folks have, it's the only verse they've ever known because the only time they come to church is at Christmas and they think this is the only verse in the Bible. But I, I do love this verse um, and, and, it, and it blessed me specifically uh, for today. So we're gonna, we're gonna read it and I, I read out loud if you'll follow along silently. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll read out loud. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, this is verse one of of Luke chapter two, that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. I want you to read that with me. Ready, one, two, three, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Stop. Because he was of the house of the lineage of David. I'm going to read it again and you can join with me. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, read with me, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. Important. I wanted to emphasize that. Keep that in your memory bank. He was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, and so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, in the inn. By the way, it says so, it was, so that while they were there, the days were completed. She didn't arrive that night pregnant. They couldn't find accommodations through the entire portion of the pregnancy. It wasn't just that night. They couldn't find a place while everyone was descending upon the city for, for um, the, the decree to be registered and the census to be completed. She went through that whole pregnancy living in this area that was not the inn. They couldn't find a place. And so we'll cover that momentarily. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, we commit ourselves to your word. Lord, lead us into all truth. Speak this truth into our hearts. Lord, as we prepare for this Christmas season, which is just such a, I sense, Lord, in the community, an awakening. And I ask God, not only an awakening in this community, but this, this county, this state, this nation, and through the world, that our, our hearts would be awakened to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I thank you for the work that you're, you're doing and continue to do, and just the changes that I'm witnessing before my very eyes that so excite me and encourage me in this walk of faith. And so, Lord, as we re-examine the passage of Scripture that's been read thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times over the ages, this day, Lord, we come to receive an insight that you desire us to have. And so, Lord, please, we commit ourselves to you and we ask that you administer and we give you the glory and the honor and the praise because that's the work you're gonna do. No man does that. You do it, Lord, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. So 
So this week I was invited to go speak at a Bible college here in Ventura County. I, I didn't know much about it. Uh, I know it's run through the city church up in Ventura. City church is an amazing um, uh, kind of denomination that started up in Seattle and they just do great work and they're church planting and the folks there are complete servants and I, I knew I was stepping into a good organization. I just wasn't aware of them in their entirety. And they had invited me to speak and it was on my calendar and typically I don't have a lot of notes telling me what I'm supposed to do or how to prepare. I didn't have a clue what they wanted me to talk on. Uh, so I'm flying blind, which is typically how I'm always flying. And, um, and, and it's kind of a crapshoot and I, I kind of like the tension involved with that, not knowing what to expect. What's behind door number two? And, and as I'm getting there, um, I, I arrive a little bit early. A lady comes out to greet me. She just loves the Lord. She's on fire. She's a director of the Bible college. She says, you're gonna be sitting with a little over 50 of our college students um, and, and they're, they're gonna, they wanna be exposed to the, the work you do, not only as a minister, but also engage in the, the civic arena uh, in, in your in your political position, and that we want to stretch them and take them outside the box a little bit. I'm like, that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> I like this door. I don't want to open the other two. This is exciting. And she said, and she said you have two hours. That they want to take a, probably a bathroom break or a little break in between because they, they kind of have a short attention span. I'm like, okay, all right, I can do all that. And I get in, the room packs out. There's over 50 students, so I think 57 total. And typically when you have a non-accredited Bible college, you're going to get kids that, you know, just never could get into a four-year school. Um, they're they're kind of wayward. They don't really have any direction in life. And so the parents, it's inexpensive. I'll throw them in there. And you get kind of the, the dredge uh, of, of a class. Uh, that wasn't the case. These kids were unbelievable. They were articulate. They were, they were just beautiful, beautiful people, um, and so sweet and attentive um, and engaging. And, and I, I was taken aback. Uh, every third word wasn't like, um, yeah, like, 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 um, 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 <laughs> uh, they, that's not how they spoke. And, and they would pose questions. As a matter of fact, when I concluded, well over 20 thank you notes came in, and they were all articulate in their own way. And such kind students, just masterful. So I began to, and, and I was just, I went all over the place. I was just throwing stuff up on the wall and just seeing where it would go. And I took them through a whole slew of different directions. But, it, but they wanted me to address the political side of it. And so I began to share with them. And one, a number of the thank you notes commented that I have never seen the scriptures in that capacity of our of our of our calling of the Lord to engage in the public square. I, I took them through, through Genesis 15, seven. I think it's 15, seven, where the, the Lord says to, to uh, 15, six, the Lord said, to, the, the scripture says that Abraham, Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And, and, and I said to them, you know, if we look, if we look at Ephesians uh, chapter two, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his poema, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I said, you guys have been saved by grace through faith. They're like, yeah, yeah, amen, amen, and they're worshipers. You know, everything in that generation is feeling. And they love, they love the feeling of worship. Mmm. And they love the love of the Lord. And then if they can sense it and feel it, it's real to them. 
And my comment was, Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. And, and you guys are righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. They're like, yeah, amen. Actually, yes. They were articulate, remember? Yes. And I said, it's all about grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. He paid the, yes. And it's not out of obligation, but adoration. Yes. I mean, they get, they get it. And then I go, why do we have the law? What's the point of that? Well, it was for the Jews. I go, yeah, okay, so it was for the Jews, but what's the point of it? And they were kind of baffled. I said, let's go to Galatians 3. I take them to Galatians 3, and it describes in Galatians 3 why the law, what's the purpose of the law? Okay, I just heard something I thought was kind of cool. I was going to dance to it, but I said, what's the purpose of the law? And I read to them because Paul to the Galatians writes that Abraham believed God was accredited to him as righteousness. It's also in 1 Peter. It's also in Romans 5. Abraham believed God was accredited to him as righteousness. But in, in Galatians 3, this is what it says. It says, the law was given over 400 years after Abraham was made righteous by faith. So, Abraham is just like you guys. He's saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He's righteous because he believed God, and God made him righteous, just like you. So what's the point of the law? Why would God muck it up by bringing in commandments and Levitical laws? And they're like, dude. Now they're getting there. Dude, I don't know. Because it says in, in Galatians 3, I think 26 and 27, that the, that the, the, the law is a school teacher to point us to Christ, but also to keep us under guard until faith comes. Wait, well, yeah, 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 yeah. You see, when you apply godly principles, it points you to the Lord. And God gave the law because faith is an exercise of the will. And, and unless you know the truth, the truth will set you free. How will they know unless someone tells them and the law is established to show people that they need Christ? And it points them to the Lord. And I took them through the law and Aristotle and I took them through all this stuff and they're taking copious notes and the teacher's taking copious notes. They're like, I've never ever comprehended this before. I can't fathom this. And, and I pointed out, I said, you know, and I took them back to the lesson that we did last week on leprosy. And, and, and how leprosy is the inability to feel anything. And, and you think that not being able to feel pain would be, would, would, would be a utopia. It's not a utopia, it's a leper colony. The inability to feel pain isn't, isn't a leper colony today. The inability to feel pain is downtown LA or downtown San Francisco where you've got folks that, that have state-subsidized methadone or heroin that they're injecting into their veins. Now, we're going to outlaw plastic straws, but we are going to allow hypodermic needles with hepatitis to flood out to the Pacific Ocean. And we have all these individuals that are defecating themselves, they're emaciated, they're, they're, they're naked and shivering, but they feel no pain as they do the heroin nod. They're pain-free and isolated. And you can't see them, you can't speak to them because they're invisible. 
They can't see you and you don't want to see them. You don't want to be reminded. To get involved in that is, I just give them more heroin. Make it go away. I'll do something really important like banning a straw, but just give them the needle. And I look at them, uh, these young people, I say, is that good? Is that good governance? Is that what God wants? It's feel good or do good. It feels good to make someone else's pain go away. But it doesn't do them any good because pain is a gift from God to show us we're out of alignment with what he desires. And all we're doing by feeling good and giving them the ability to feel good instead of face their pain, all we're doing is making their world a train wreck. And they have no idea that their life is miserable because we've supplied them with the ability to feel nothing. No empathy, no sympathy, no personal responsibility. And then we come to a place where I ask these kids, what does the future look like for you in the governance of a nation? How do you apply principles for people to see the Lord? Do you see, that's why I stepped into the public square and every one of the kids said, how do I do that? I was moved by that. They're waiting to be awakened. They wanna be awakened. But it's gonna require pain because our views aren't popular. And as I shared all that, my heart was moved, I was touched, I was encouraged, I'm coming into the Christmas season, I'm sensing this awakening. And it brought me back to a verse that I preached a number of years ago on a Christmas Eve service. And I preached this verse, and and in the reading of it, you'll see momentarily, can you imagine the shock that I would actually take that verse and make an application politically? I don't ever do that. (laughs) And a member of the congregation who was a critical component of the congregation who had been a great encouragement to me that night, they decided they'll never come back to the church again. I'm finished with this church. I can't believe you did politics on Christmas Eve. And I, I went through a struggle in my heart, like am I off on something here? Am I losing something? God, and, and, and everyone lets you know why they're leaving. And in some capacity, it's because they've been offended. And, and I, I guarantee you, I will have a 100% effective ability to insult you and, and insult you in some capacity. Just wait. <laughs> but in this case, and the Bible says, you know, bear one another's burdens, it's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. They left and they let me know why. And this was the passage of scripture. And it's one that is on every Christmas card you can imagine. I pulled some Christmas cards. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What do you think jumped out at me? Just leaving that. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then you see over here the same one. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And even though they, they make it tiny and the government should be upon his shoulders, I still saw it. I still saw it big. And then they just would leave this part. For unto us a child is born, dot, dot, dot. And the son is given, and upon his shoulders. <laughs> and I went there. But these are Christmas cards. And they come from Isaiah 9. And this is verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. Could just be the, those words together instead of a, a comma, Wonderful Counselor. But they go wonderful, comma, counselor. And if he's a counselor and he's wonderful, then he's a wonderful counselor. So I don't know why they do that. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Prince is a, a governmental position. Peace is what he brings. And I, I, was, I just can't, you know, when I read that, I, I, I see the Noahic Covenant. I see Romans 13 that, that they're, that, they're instruments, uh, that, that they're ministers of justice to execute wrath on those who would do evil. God appoints all positions of authority that would pray for those and kings in authority. I see all that. I, I can't get around it. Ever since I've stepped into the political sphere, it, it, scripture has taken on a whole new meaning to me. It's a realm of Christendom we've abandoned. And, and I, I share this and people leave. And I, I get it because you've never studied it and I've got an entire generation of young people that have really not been exposed to the apathy or, or the, the frustration of dominionism and a theocracy that, that the, the church embraced at one season and now they're looking trying to figure out how to govern because they, 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 they've been inculcated that socialism is the direction but when they start to hear these things their heart changes and they're moved because the, the two worlds come together and it makes sense to them and if it makes sense to them I know it can make sense to us even though we're older and we think we're smarter and we were easily offended and I get that but the passage goes on of I mean this is context the guy left and this is they, it's on Christmas cards I picked, I picked an honorable Christmas verse and in context there's verse 7 look at it of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in order to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this justice and judgment laws government increase thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven what does God's kingdom on the earth look like does anybody get a sermon on how to apply God's principles for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven do we know what the best form of government looks like in relation to fallen man and the need for us to dwell together in community common unity when he says I'll make disciples of nations which is boundaries borders compacts ideologies does anyone ever comprehend that and why would you walk out? Because the church is not supposed to be involved in politics. Yes, it is. So, I didn't want to insult anyone this year. So I'm not going to teach that verse. Instead, I'm going to take a verse that I think should be in every Christmas card that is sent. I'm gonna call Hallmark. <laughs> this, this is gonna be the Christmas card that we didn't send and probably will never send because we don't do Christmas cards because again, we have a little thing we like to call a life that my wife and I, you know, we, we had, there's no way I'm gonna be able to send out Christmas cards. And if you didn't get one from me, don't worry, I didn't send one to anyone else either. <laughs> I love you just as much as I love them. Or maybe I don't. <laughs> but you'll never know. So the, if I sent a Christmas card, you'd have this verse with Merry Christmas from Rob and Michelle McCoy in a Happy New Year. And here's the verse. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of 
Kimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. Merry Christmas. Love, Rob and Michelle McCoy. <laughs> Such a lovely verse for Christmas. Let's, let's, let's look at it again. It's really sweet. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Kimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. Little giggles, I like that. When we read out of Luke chapter two, and came to pass in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus and all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. City of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of the lineage of David. He was of the house of the lineage of David. In Luke and in Matthew, Jesus, baby Jesus, in Luke and in Matthew, is from the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lineage, he's the son of David. His direct lineage, both on his mother's side and his father's side, goes straight to David. That's why he is, it, it has to be. It was prophesied that he would be of the lineage of King David. King David's ancestral home is Bethlehem. Jesus had to go, his family had to go to Bethlehem. That's where the line of David comes from. They went to Bethlehem. That's David's ancestral home. I've been to Bethlehem. I don't like to go to Bethlehem. It's in the Palestinian territory. Your, your Jewish guard has to get off, your Jewish uh, tour guide has to get off, your Palestinian gets on, and they're armed and dangerous, and you go through, and, and, it's, it, and it goes from clean to dirty, and, and peaceful to chaotic, and, and you're, you're just, you know, especially as a, somebody who's in charge of all these, so I don't even like to go there. I, I just, I park the bus in Israel territory, point over into the Palestinian Authority and go, see that? That's Bethlehem. Let's get in the bus and go home. And, and it's not much of a city to speak of. And back then, it was like, a, it did, I don't even think it had a stoplight. It was like one, one light town, like, you know, drive through. There was nothing to speak of in the city. It was tiny. But this was the ancestral home of David. This was the ancestral home of David. And so it says, they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Kimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. It's an interesting one, and I'll get there in a moment. I was looking at Christmas hymns last night. This is a little tangent, and we'll come back. Don't worry, I won't lose you. You know what the number one Christmas hymn in the world is? Everybody awake? <laughs> Silent night? Silent Night is second. <laughs> oh, little town of Bethlehem, a little bit further down the list. Oh, Holy Night. Boom. Oh, Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Right? Steve Green, love his rendition of it. There's been a few of them. Every, I mean, it's such a hard one to sing. 
I was a, a teenager in Coronado, California. And our family tradition is on New Year's, or excuse me, Christmas Eve, we open all the gifts. And on Christmas Day, we just sleep in. That's it. We have a little dinner, shred the gifts open, play with them. The next day, we're playing with our toys all Christmas Day. Church isn't involved. We don't do that. Wasn't raised in a Christian home. And here, this was our tradition. That night, we opened all the gifts. I'm surrounded by a pile of trinkets and things, and, and it was exciting, and now it's over. And there's trash to be put away, and I'm just kind of empty. And so, on my own, thinking there's got to be something more to this Christmas thing. Never really a church goer, don't remember much of anything. I don't remember ever praying with my mom and dad. I don't remember ever reading the Bible with them. On my own, I, I drive over, actually I didn't, I, I walked. I walked over to the Methodist church that was just down the street. It was right across the street from the school. And I got there late, and I knew that they had a Christmas Eve service because I saw the signs, because that's how I'd come and go from Orange Avenue. And I got there late, and I didn't realize that churches pack out on Christmas Eve. And so I was a little irritated. And the only place is up in the balcony. I'm going up there, and it's hot. And it's crowded and somebody steps aside to give me a seat and I kind of sense the looks from some of the people who felt as though I'd interrupted their world. Really a warm feeling in the church that Christmas. That's why we're not going to be that way. Amen. And I, I, I sat in the seat and they began to sing, Oh Holy Night. And I listened to the words and I was so moved. And the depiction of what in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Just start crying. Like an, like an awakening. I figured I'd attend this church. Came to find out, it was a very conservative community, came to find out that the minister at this Methodist church, uh, she was a lesbian, uh, super liberal, in a conservative, and she, they were like ushering her out, and I was in the middle of the political stuff. I'm like, ah, I don't get all this. This is weird. I just wanted to come and figure out what Christianity is about, but it's, this isn't where I don't, mm. But it created an awakening and a hunger that, that brought me to the Lord. And I'll never forget a holy night. And, and as I started to study this, where did it come from? This had to be written by Spurgeon, or who did this? It's just so poetic. Oh, holy night was originally written in French. And there was a church in a, in a city in France that had refurbished its, its organ. And they wanted to celebrate the organ being fixed. So they hired a writer who was kind of a secular progressive. He wasn't a real Christian going guy, but everyone had been raised kind of with religiosity. And so they asked him to write a poem on the dedication of this organ. So he writes it. And they said, well, we want to play it on the organ, so we need music. So they... they they enlisted the help in the 1840s of a, of a person who was part of, later in the 1850s, there'd be the, or they'd gone through, excuse me, they'd gone through the French Revolution, and this person was really into, basically they'd be considered today a, a socialist or communist. 
And then, well, I'll put, I'll put music to it. And so he composes the music for it. And so you have this French poem with French music composed by two secular progressives or communists or socialists, and they have no love for God, but they put it together. And it becomes a song in France. Now, the composition was really good because the one who put it together loved classical music and had compositional ability. Well, here in the United States of America in the 1850s, there had been an awakening occurring, and then there had been kind of a move towards the left a little bit, and there was a, um, a Unitarian minister. He was a Unitarian Universalist, which means they believe everyone's going to heaven, there's no hell, and they, he was a transcendentalist, kind of like Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and a bunch of others that they'd, they'd put together kind of a liberal enclave, but to experience the, the arts, and he loved classical music, this minister. And he'd put together um, a, a, a newspaper that dealt with classical music. And it became the preeminent newspaper for classical musicians across the country. And he took this song that, that he loved the composition of, and he translated it into English. And then he wrote the composition out and did it at Christmas. I'm thinking to myself, I read all that, and I'm really disappointed because I was hoping there'd be something significant about this, and my favorite Christmas song was written by communists. <laughs> what kind of a church is this? And I, I just, what, how did they come up with that? On my best day, I couldn't write something as beautiful as that. Because you're creating the image of God. You look around you and there's things that inspire you and even on that night, the coldest heart is still warmed. And a love for music draws people, if the culture is such, and we begin to do music appreciation in schools and all of a sudden you start to realize some of these composers and even though they may not buy in completely, they appreciate the beauty of it and they celebrate it and then the two come together and the next thing you know, you have something that it's, it's long past the copyright but it is, it's the number one song, Christmas song in the world. And every artist wants to cover it. It's beautiful. And God can take this fallen world and people who don't even have a heart for him and cause it to awaken. And I love that. And as I was in the church that night and I heard that song, my heart began to awaken. And it would just be a matter of time before I would realize, you know, God... I get this now. You want to live inside of me. I've been living my life and you're out there somewhere. But you're never so far away that I can't call on you. And then the moment came where I said, Lord, would you come into my life? From that moment, I was a new creature in Christ. I understood what I was saying to those college students. I was saved by grace through faith. I asked him and he just transformed me. I became a new creature in Christ. He took up residence in my heart. He's changed my life. He changed the course of it, the direction of it, the purpose of it. Even the pain is purposeful. Everything is joyful. God has a way. He took all my trash and he made it a treasure. How does God do that? 
He sets it up over time. And that's why, that's why I, would, I would put that as the Christmas verse. This verse, interestingly enough, they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Kimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. This verse comes out of 2 Samuel 17. Absalom has rebelled against King David. Absalom is his son. He split the kingdom and there's a civil war, and unlike what we experienced in the 1860s, the nation, 650,000 people died on a field of battle. Thousands would die as a result of this civil war. David's son Absalom would rebel, try to kill his father, try to destroy the kingdom and take it over. David's most trusted counselor, Ahithophel, sides with Absalom. David's scared. He realizes, unless Hushai the archite can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel, I'm gonna lose everything. And David's no young pup. He's old by this time. And they're coming to descend on Jerusalem, and David's gotta get out of Dodge. So David takes anyone who's willing to stay with him, and they cross the Jordan, and they go into the wilderness to hide, which was David's MO, especially when Saul would chase him. Now he's old, and he's running. He's running from someone younger, and this, in, in, in previous times, it was somebody older chasing somebody younger. In this case, it's somebody old being chased by somebody young. David's in trouble. And the people that stayed with him, you know, the definition of a friend is when the whole world goes out, they come in. I've had friends like that my whole life. Doesn't matter what I do, where I've been, what I've said, they still have never left me. My best friend's my wife. Well, David had a friend like that in Barzillai. You see, there was this man named Barzillai, and it's 2 Samuel 17, I'll read it to you. It starts with verse 27. It says, now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah and the people of Ammon, Mashir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite, Barzillai the Gileadite, Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. Hang on, it'll make sense. He brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Barzillai brought food to David and doing that, it's like standing up in California and saying, I am voting for and you're going to be dead. (laughs) Wear a hat. Watch what happens. The point is, he made his allegiance known and sided with the guy who was probably going to lose, but he did it because he was his friend and he wasn't going to leave him even though the chips were stacked against him. And at great expense to himself, he pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor, and he gave to David Beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, cheese, herd, blah, blah, all of it. And they got to eat. Well, lo and behold, Hushai thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel, which David was blessed by. Ahithophel realized Absalom was an idiot. Ahithophel goes back to his house, puts his house in order, hangs himself. He was angry at David and rebelled against David because David had slept with, slept with Bathsheba and then murdered his grandson-in-law and Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. It's a long story, but Ahithophel, the whole, the whole rebellion implodes. Absalom's losing. And now it's time to come back in. 
And in a civil war, you're going to get your pound of flesh from the people who killed the ones you love. And that's why in, in, in the 1860s with Andrew Johnson, the civil war was so awful and, and Lincoln's desire to bring emancipation and reconciliation with the South and to give Africans, Ameri- African Americans freedom and to give them parcels of land and to send federal troops down so they could vote. That's why every black congressman or senator was a Republican. Because the Republicans had set them free. The Republicans were protecting their right to vote. The Republicans recognized them as citizens and they voted Republican. 1868, well, first of all, 1865, Lincoln's killed. Andrew Johnson is now the president and there's a contentious election. And to resolve the election, the Democrats say, okay, you can have the presidency as long as you remove troops from the South. And the Republicans said, as long as we can hold on to power, we'll throw them under the bus. Or better yet, we'll put them to the back of the bus. And from that moment on, Democrats have voted, or blacks have voted Democrat consistently. Bill Clinton had 98% black vote. And now we're watching what they call Blexit, blacks exiting out of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. You're watching this and you're thinking, why? And these are all critical components of, of community. People stepping in and, and taking chances, trying to connect and communicate to the way God intended us to live. Politics is the highest form of community. It's morality and sociability, engaging in areas you don't want and watching all this happen. And you watch a civil war that's taken until 2019 for folks to start to come back and have a, a conversation. Well, David went back to go resolve things after the civil war. And it picks up the story in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all and as much as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Mephibosheth's like, you know, I, I, I don't want to have war with you. You take whatever you want. And David starts to tally up his friends and he says this, Barzillai, the Gileadite, he came down from Rogalim, went across the Jordan with the king. David says, Barzillai, I want you to go with me into Jerusalem. Come on, let's go. We'll go across the Jordan together. And he escorted him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man. He was 80 years old. He's like, all right, let's go. Let's go. 80 back then was like 120. And he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, come across with me and I will provide you while you're with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, and what David's saying is, listen, come with me. You can live in the palace. You've been my friend. When I didn't have a friend and I was a penny looking for change, you never left me. I'm going to reward you and you will be in the palace with me, Barzillai. Barzillai said to the king, verse 34, how long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm today 80 years old. Can I discern between good and bad? I don't, I don't know what good food is and bad food is. I can't taste anything anymore. Just give me pudding. I don't care. It's like, can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? I have no idea. You can, you can give me something and I can't tell you if it's sweet or sour. They're gone. I can't smell. I can't taste. You know, when, when, when you're young, your feet run and your nose smells. And when you're old, your, your feet smell and your nose runs. It's just reversed. 
This has happened to Barzillai. Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? I, I, I can't even discern notes anymore. Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with you. I'll walk with you a little bit just so everyone knows I'm with you and if they want to come and get me, I am not ashamed to be a friend of the king. And why should the king repay me with such reward? But then Barzillai does something cool. He says, please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. I remember Greg Laurie was talking to Chuck Smith when he was older and he was telling him all about the stuff that they want to do and the outreaches and everything and Chuck is just preoccupied and he's, and, and when, I, when, when he comes out of that meeting, somebody asked him, did you, did you get Chuck to understand? He goes, no. All Chuck wanted was an egg salad sandwich. Life becomes real simple when you're older. I, I don't want the crust on it. And, and I, I just, I want to sit here and I, I don't want to, I just, I've earned it. I'm just going to rest a little bit. And that's Barzillai. He says, you don't have to repay me for anything. I don't need anything. I, whatever the rich have, I've got it. I've eaten it all and I can't taste it now anyways. Let me turn back and die in my own city. I just, I want to go where I'm from. I want things surrounding me that comfort me. But he says, here's your servant, Kimham. Remember Kimham? Here's your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham. And the king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. So Kim Ham's walking with David. Who's David? David is the king of Israel. David is the king from whose lineage would come the Christ child. David is from a town of Bethlehem, which is the city of David. It is his ancestral home and David's king. And I guarantee you, David's got a really nice home in Bethlehem. And he's going to bless Kim Ham. And what does he bless Kim Ham with? The habitation of Kim Ham in Bethlehem. What's the point? What's the point? And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What inn? The city of David, which is called Bethlehem, which is where the house of the lineage of David is. And there's no room for the only inn. The habitation translated in the Hebrew and translated here, the habitation, the inn of Kimham. It's a tiny town. There's not a lot of inns. He's got the only one. What's the point? The point is Mary and Joseph connected to the lineage of David proven by Matthew and Luke come to their ancestral home to give birth to the savior of the world and they're not allowed in because there's no room. Kind of hard to f process this. I'll help you. I went with my son last night. I've got nine minutes. I'll finish on time. Hang in there. You're almost done. I can see you. I have this gift. You'll be asleep before you know it. <laughs> I went to the movie with my son to go see Richard Jewell. 
Maybe you haven't seen it. It was the bombing in Atlanta Olympics in the 90s. And the security guard discovers the bomb, saves hundreds of lives, and then they arrest him as a suspect and they blame him because he's a white male that has no friends, that lives with his mother, and they try to pin it on him and they make his life a complete living hell and, and the press goes after him and the FBI goes after him and they ruin their life. He ends up dying at 44 years of age from heart failure only to be exonerated and the real bomber was found six years later. They had no evidence, but they still tried to destroy his life. The man who saved lives was thrown under the bus and destroyed by the government he sought to protect and by the people he sought to protect and he was maligned by the press that should have praised him. Sound familiar? A savior comes into the world and the world rejects him. They despise the light because they love darkness more than light. In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in the darkest region of the world, and Christians, as we studied last week, would take the darkest day of the year where there's little light and lots of darkness, and they would infuse it with hope that from this day forward, December 21st, the winter solstice, every day is going to become lighter and more beautiful. And they would infuse that with Christ, that in the darkness, a light has shone. All throughout Isaiah 9, 8 and 9, And unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. And the government will be upon his shoulder to change the world. But nothing can change until he is given rightful access to the home that is his. And when he gets to the door, there's no room. There's no room in the inn. There's a book that was written years ago called My Heart, Christ Home. Loved it. Influenced my walk with Christianity. One of the very first books I ever read after I professed Christ as my Savior. After I said, Lord, come into my heart. And this is one of the verses I'll never forget. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here it is Christmas. The Lord's knocking at the door of your heart. And what's fascinating about that is another verse that the the author shared was out of John 14. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. God said, let us make man in our own image. They've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in their mother's womb. Sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without God's full knowledge. He has every hair in your head numbered. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Nothing you have, he hasn't given you. There's nothing on this earth that doesn't belong to him. You're breathing his air, drinking his water, living on his dirt, eating his food, and you reject his existence, and you design a government that's not on his shoulder, it's on yours, and you wanna live a life apart from him, And he lovingly on this day in the darkness of your soul, a great light has shone and he's knocking on the door of your heart and that's the heart, that's his dwelling place. He has every right to be there and he's waiting for you to let him in. And he's a gentleman. 
He's giving you, he's given you and me something all of creation has never received. The ability of free will to love. He wants you to let him in. And those many years ago in that balcony of that Methodist church hearing O Holy Night written by communists, my heart was moved. And I wanted him to take up residence in my heart. And he did. My heart is Christ's home. That's why I love the verse about Kim Ham. David gave his house. But the problem is, when the time came to extend it to family who rightfully deserved to be there, somebody along the way had forgotten. And Jesus wasn't let in. We will come to him and make our home with him. Christ wants to take up residence in your heart. You're either going to be a Christian or you're going to be a fool. And I didn't say it. The Lord did. And so this Christmas... (laughs) Amen? That's all I gotta say about that. I, I, I want you to know how special it is when the Lord sits on the throne of your life that he rightfully deserves. The, the world is such a remarkable place and your eyes are open to things you never saw before. And I, I encourage you, take that step of faith. Just say, Lord, would you come live in my heart and be my king and take the place that's rightfully yours? And he'll do it. I promise you.